welcome to episode 36 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson. Today I'm in uh, Hillsboro, North Carolina, and with me is Nathan Fox. Nathan, are you in San Francisco? I am in San Francisco, yes. Sorry I was late this morning getting started with the podcast. Um, I am constitutionally unable to do any work in my own home. I have to make myself, I have to go to Starbucks, like in order to do anything. So that's where I was this morning working on like the agenda for the show and stuff. So then I, then I got stuck there and didn't make it home uh, in time for our scheduled start time. So I apologize for that. Oh, no worries. I was still like putting these uh, ideas together, um, adding to what you already did. By the way, do you uh, write your books then at Starbucks? I, yes. Well, and bars and stuff. Um, Okay. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of time, actually writing, I do, I definitely do my best writing in bars. Um, I don't know what it is, but it's just like, give me a beer and sit me down and I'll put the rap music on the headphones and get, get cracking. That's my usual recipe. Cool. Um, in, in like a, in like a booth or something? Uh, yeah, not usually at the bar, uh, some, somewhere kind of away from, from the bar itself, but Give me a corner somewhere or a yeah, dark table shady corner off to the side. Yep, I'm that yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, um, today, yeah, we have a lot of questions actually. So uh, let's see here. At least it uh, looks like five. We're going to be touching on do I need a 170 to work in medical marijuana law? Very excited about this one. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, how do I get better on stamina? and main point questions. Uh, That's from Jordan. Then we have some questions about required assumptions from Michael. Um, Christopher wanted to know why we suggest doing time to practice from the beginning. Okay. And then Courtney asked, who should I ask for letters of recommendation? So a lot of good stuff here. I imagine this will take up most of our time. So let's dive in. Let's Can I, um, before, before we do, if you don't mind, I'm going to make one um, quick plug, which is, uh, Ben, I'm sure you don't even know this, but I started a new podcast, and uh, it is not LSAT related in the slightest. It's actually about video games and movies and stuff. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So if uh, anybody out there wants to listen to me ramble on and on about um, my favorite video games and movies and stuff... It's called the Overwatch Podcast. Uh, there's only right now one episode. You'll know that you've got the right one when you see the giant eyeball logo. <clears throat> um, anyways, it's the Overwatch Podcast. Look for the giant eyeball logo. And it's me and my buddy Mike, who uh, works in media down in L.A. And we just uh, get together once a week or so and chat about games and things. Okay, cool. Yeah. So what, what did you talk about in your first episode? Uh, we talked about... The uh, launch uh, upcoming later this year of Fallout 4, which is going to be uh, super exciting, and the iPad game Fallout Shelter, which is out now, which is free actually, and we talked about, oh boy, all sorts of things, movies. I think we touched on 15 different things probably in a a pretty rambling one-hour session. Um, The other thing I've learned uh, is... I am doing the editing. The first episode, we didn't even edit it at all. And then the second episode, I'm learning how to use Audacity so that I can figure out how to edit podcasts. Okay. And the one thing that I learned is I talk way too much. Oh, my God, I talk so much. (laughs) And I say um a lot. 
and I ended up, yeah, it took me probably 30 minutes to edit the first five minutes of this uh, episode that I'm working on right now. So anyways, I apologize to the listeners for talking all the time. Well, that's a lot of work. So you're going through and taking out all the ums? Yeah, taking out, um, not all of the ums, but the really obnoxious ones, or just if there's a a long stretch of dead air, uh, I'll take that out, or I'll take out coughing noises or banging noises or all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I guess we should give a shout out to Sean Lango for uh, all the great work he's done editing this show. If we sound good, or especially if I sound good, that's uh, all Sean fixing up the way that I normally talk. So thanks. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Um, I never noticed, there's an um for you. I never noticed you saying um, so maybe I'm just blind to that, but it always sounds pretty good to me. You should keep talking. Okay, thanks. I'll do my best. I mean, it's very easy for me, apparently, to keep talking on and on and on. And maybe I'm more critical of it when I'm editing my own stuff, but boy, there were a lot of ums in there. Maybe I do it less when I'm talking about the LSAT because I really know what I'm talking about. And when I'm talking about video games and media and things, I don't feel like I'm an expert in that. So I don't, you know, I, I don't speak as well. But anyway, okay, it's called yeah. the Overwatch podcast. Look for the giant eyeball. And uh, yeah, please subscribe and let me know if you if you do listen to it. I'd love to know what you think of it. You can hit me at uh, Nathan at FoxLSAT.com. Awesome. So this first one is from Alex, who's in Asia right now. And He's the guy who wants to work in medical marijuana, um, and he's not quite at a 170 yet, and so he's trying to figure out what to do. And honestly, he has a lot of stuff going for him right now. Uh, he's done Teach for America. He's on a Fulbright teaching grant. He is. He went to a top 10 school, apparently, and got a 3.94 seriously uh, good stuff he is in a unique position he's studying for the june 2015 lsat uh still which may seem surprising to some people but that's because his test date is on june 28th holy cow when is that oh we got four more days well hmm. um that's because he's taking it in asia yeah in any case what else uh what else do you want to add about alex before we get into his question um well he just he says he's got friends <clears throat> from the Teach from America and Fulbright, Fulbright Teaching Grant uh, who are already at top 14 law schools or are going to go to top 14 law schools. He says he feels social pressure to attend an institution like one of these. Um, but he's been studying for three months <clears throat> intensively. He says four hours plus per day uh, for three months. And he's moved from a 158 to a 168. Practice test average is now consistently in the high 160s, but just can't break 170. And is worried about not getting into the top 14, not getting money from the top 14. Wants to pay as little as possible for law school. Yeah, so the highest score he's gotten is a 168, apparently. Sounds like it, yeah. The average of his last five tests is 167. Okay. Um, And he wants to pay as little as possible, yeah. So, yeah, his actual question is, well, that he doesn't want to pay, and he really wants to work in the legal marijuana industry. Do you think it's really worth working himself into the ground, this is what he says, 
and possibly putting off law school for another year to try to get to try and get an LSAT score in the 98th to 99th percentile. The goal, of course, would be to try to get money from a T14, but I guess I recognize that going to a T14 school may not be really necessary for pursuing this goal, and maybe I shouldn't be an egotistical ass and feel that I have to go to a T14 just because all my friends do. Ego aside, so he's kind of going on here. The only benefit I really see to going to a T14 instead of a school that would possibly be even better or more directly suited to my goals would be, for example, UC Boulder, is that a T14 may provide me with better options down the road should my interests change in the course of my time in law school or my career at large. Okay, so that's a lot, but long and short of this, should he take the LSAT now or should he wait and study and take it later? I guess part of his problem is that he won't be able to... He doesn't think he'll be able to take the October test, and if he ends up taking the December December test, he feels like that's kind of late. I think that's why he thinks it's going to take him another year if he's going to try to shoot for a higher score. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot here that we can that we can deal with. I mean, first of all, would you tell him to take the test on June 28th or not? I think I would. Um, it, it he's pretty close to his goal, so there's a possibility that he ends up. I mean, he's still going to get a good score no matter what, but he may end up getting a 170. That's not totally outside the realm of possibility. In fact, since he's written us this email, or I can't remember if there's email or on the blog, but since he's written it, um, it's very possible that he's got even closer to 170. So I would say take it, and then he has the option to use it if he decides to end applying in a few months from now or whatever. But decides not to if he decides to keep going he can and i don't think it's really going to hurt him yeah and then he says i won't be back in the u.s in time to really fully prepare to take the test in october do you have any thoughts about that yeah i'm not sure exactly as long as he's back in the united states by october if he can even study somewhat he doesn't have that far to go he just needs to be here physically for yeah. the test so I, I don't know. He may be kind of making this a bigger thing than it actually is. That's how I felt about that. When I read that, I was like, wait, what? Why, why do you feel like you need to fully prepare to take the test in October? I mean, once you're prepared, you're prepared. If he's ready or if he's even close to ready for taking this June test, then even if he only studies an hour here or an hour there between the, this June 28th test and the October 3rd test, He's going to be more prepared for the October 3rd test than he is for this June 28th test, even if he barely studies. Yeah, and if he's worried about not being ready or something, he just doesn't change his score at all, which would be really surprising. But if that were to happen and he didn't feel like he wanted to take it again in the same position he is in now, he could just not take it and then take it in December. I don't think his concerns about December are as as big either right i fear that taking it in december means i'm applying too late in the cycle and i would have agreed with that five years ago i you know i I was really pretty adamant about telling people like listen you, you need to apply at the beginning of the cycle to give yourself the best chances of admission and of scholarships but that was back when law schools had you know when when applications were at their very peak and nowadays boy especially this cycle with all of the schools pushing their deadlines out and you know so many schools now are even accepting the June LSAT which is shocking to me um, for this year's admission 
uh, I don't feel like the December test is really that late in the cycle anymore. At yeah. least that's, I mean, of course, now there are like some early decision programs and stuff that you won't qualify for um, if you take the December LSAT. Then again, there are some early decision programs that you can qualify for even if you take the December LSAT, which is also shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he might, it sounds to me like he might be making a mountain out of a molehill here on a lot of different fronts. Yeah, I would keep pressing for it. I would take it four days from now, which is his June test. I would keep shooting for October. And then if that doesn't work out, take it in December. Um, and be done with it. And then be done with it. And if for some reason his life gets so busy that something in this process makes it not possible for him to go to law school in the way that he wants to with the the, the scholarships and so on, then... Maybe he can regroup and shoot for next year. But I think that's so unlikely given all the possibilities that this could work. Yeah. It, he's he's put in more effort than the average student does, right? I mean, I think he's put in more effort than the average student who ends up in the top 14 has. Like three mm-hmm. months of four hours plus per day. If If that's true, he says an average of four plus hours per day for three months. If that's true... God damn it, that's a lot of studying for the LSAT. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's 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 been successful, moved from a 158 to a 168, which, by the way, you know, what is that, 96th percentile or something like that? Yeah, yeah, that's and, correct. Um, right, right around there. That's an awful good score. I think he's also maybe overestimating what kind of an LSAT score he needs to get into the top 14 schools. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Ben, but I have lots of students that are in top 14 schools and even top five schools with 167, 168, 169 LSAT scores. Yeah. Uh, especially with his really high GPA, 3.98. Is that right? Is that what 3. he said? 3.94, yeah. 3.94, 3.94 and uh, Fulbright and Teach for America and all this stuff. I, I mean, I think he's he's kind of seems like he's kind of driving himself crazy. Um mm-hmm. The other thing that I wanted to say was I don't understand why he wouldn't just take it in June, see what he gets. He's I, he's he's sort of like planning too much in a way, because once he takes this June LSAT and the score comes back, then he's going to have new information and then he's going to be able to make a new plan. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. thing once he maybe takes the October test, same thing once he maybe takes the December test. And once applications open and he starts applying then he's going to start getting feedback from the schools as well. So it's like, I understand what he, you know, he wants to plan his entire future, but you can't really plan your entire future. Instead, you have to study your best, you know, get yourself prepared and then just take the test, see how you do, go ahead and apply, see what happens. And you can always reevaluate and, you know, change. And if he ends up waiting another year, you can wait another year even though you've applied the cycle, you can always just say, oh, I didn't, I'm not happy with my offers and I'm going to wait another year. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I do really appreciate the question uh, questions. I think it's going to work out great for Alex. Um, and I will just go ahead and put in my own personal two cents, which is I'm glad he's going to work in the legalization of marijuana industry. I don't know if you know this, Ben, but I'm a big, big fan of weed. No, I did not know that. Yeah. I am. Um, have been for 20-something years. Uh, definitely think it's 
a lot safer, a lot healthier <laughs> than alcohol. Can't understand why it's not just legal everywhere. Seems like that's the direction that we're going. Yeah. Um, Alex did mention that he he'd like to be sort of in-house counsel for the Anheuser Busch of uh, <laughs> of weed, and I you know that does look to me like an awful big growth industry. So if this is something that he's passionate about and you know really wants to dig into it, I this that seems like a great time to uh, to get into it. So. Um, Good for you, Alex. So here's a question. He is wondering if he even needs to go to a top 14 or maybe he should be shooting for like UC Boulder or something like that. Uh, I guess we didn't really touch on that a whole much. Yeah, a lot. that's a good, yeah. I, I would say keep shooting for the highest score you can get and keep shooting for a top 14 personally because I feel like a lot of times people go to law school and their goals can change. He sounds pretty committed, and if he ends up doing what he wants to do, that's awesome. Um, but there's no, I mean, at least for now, I would take the test, but also keep trying to shoot for a higher score and try to get into a top 14. He has the potential, he has the numbers otherwise to do it. So just in case he changes his mind. Yeah, if you go to a, if you, especially if you go to a top, top, top school, you can definitely practice law in any area that you want to practice in. The one thing that I would maybe, I would maybe think about what state I was going to school in um, just because, you know, and I don't know this for sure, but I'm imagining that North Carolina is not like super um, at the forefront of legalization of weed. <laughs> yeah. And and so, you know, if he went to a top 14 school in North Carolina, then he might not really get to meet the kind of people or he might just not, there might not be any opportunity to work on that sort of law while he's in school um, or during his summers or whatever, if he's going to stay in North Carolina. So I might think about going to school, you know, go to a top 14 in California where we're mm -hmm. clearly going this direction. Um, and then I also would, you know, I, it, it's the, the tough decision is always what happens if he, I mean, I think he should apply to Boulder. But what happens when he gets into a couple top 14s, but he gets the full ride offer to Boulder? That That's where I think then he's going to have the interesting decision. Yeah. Um, because, you know, getting out of law school with zero debt is awful appealing. And especially if if he really is pretty certain that this is the area that he would like to work in, Colorado is an awful good place to be working in that field right now. And if you're going to law school for free, that's pretty pretty awesome. That lowers the risk of going to law school significantly if you don't have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So I guess my advice would just be um, do your best on the LSAT, apply broadly, and then uh, give yourself a tough decision <laughs> because you'll have so many good options. Yeah. What do you think about um, – what would you say to somebody who has been studying for three months and – is stuck at 168 and wants to break into the 170s. I mean, could you give him any advice for how to shake himself out of out of whatever rut he's in? Yeah, if he really has been, a couple things come to mind. One, if he really has been studying every day four plus hours, I would take a couple days off and then take a test. Um, sometimes when people sort of reset, do nothing else that related, their scores go up. Yep. I've seen it happen a lot. So I'm not saying that is his, I'm not saying he's burned out or that 
he needs that reset, but who knows? Why not try it? It's two days. It's a small experiment. Um, it's a little tough now because we only have four days till his test, but looking forward to October and so forth. Um, I mean, he shouldn't really be doing anything now anyway, so maybe he'll, he'll do better in the June 20th test. But the second thing I would suggest looking forward to October is I would track all the questions that he gets wrong, especially in logical reasoning and possibly reading comp, and review them a week or so after he does them. He's not getting very many wrong, but and he's probably understanding why he got the ones wrong that he did get wrong pretty quickly, but he may need help sort of internalizing those lessons or recognizing broader patterns that you can't see when you only get a few wrong in a test. Yep. But if he looks over, if he writes them, he writes down which ones he got wrong or, or the ones that he was confused about, and then a week later he starts reviewing a bigger batch of questions, not just from the last test he took, he might see things. I, I When I did that prepping for my own test, I noticed that I was missing, I kept mixing up only if. Okay. And so I didn't, you know, just like hit me. And then from then on, that was pretty much solved, so. Okay. Yeah, I think those are good, good tips. Um, the one tip that I would offer him, and it is self-serving to say this, but just because it's self-serving does not mean that it's wrong. Um, he, I, I would consider working with a private tutor if I were him. Um, I don't know if he's done this yet or not, but I, I've helped lots and lots of students get over these kind of roadblocks. And especially for somebody who has put in a ton of intensive studying on his own, if he's never sat down and talked to a Ben Olson or sat down and talked to a Nathan Fox, I have a feeling that people like us are going to be able to sort of, you know, instantly diagnose some things just, just through going through mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all I would need to do is just sit down with whatever his most recent practice test is and look at his logical reasoning questions and just say, all right, dude, which ones did you miss? And you start talking about those mistakes and it's like a wealth of little things come up. Um, and it's not like guaranteed a hundred percent, you know, the second he works with me, he's going to break into the one seventies, but boy, I've seen, especially at the top of the scale, that's where I see it happen the most. Um, I've talked to an awful lot of people that are in the high one sixties who are in the one seventies after, after like even just a one or two hour, uh, tutoring session. So, um, again, yes, it's self-serving, but I, I would, I think it would be worth making that investment of an hour or two of a professional's time just to see if you could, uh, diagnose some, some problems and sort of get that little boost up into the one seventies that he's looking for. No, I couldn't agree more, especially the, at least for me, the general rule is this, the higher your score, the more likely you're going to benefit from that one-on-one yep. interaction. I, I talked to some people who are scoring very high and it's like the little nuances that you talk about, they understand and they instantly apply that to a whole host of other questions going forward. Totally. Yeah. I, I don't know if I've really thought about that before, but it, that is absolutely true. Um, the, the people who are like in the 150s, uh, you do benefit from private tutoring, but you also benefit a lot from classes and books and sort of um, off-the-shelf kinds of LSAT help. Um, 
but the people at the very top of the scale, those are the ones where you've already sort of integrated all of that off the shelf knowledge about the test. And what you really need there is like a pro to sit with you and to help you get over those last couple little hurdles. Cause there's things that you think, you know, but you don't really know them. Um, like you can technically tell me the difference between a sufficient assumption question and a necessary assumption question. And you've kind of got an idea what types of answers you're looking for on those two different types of questions. But in 10 minutes of talking to you about it, I can frequently crystallize it for you, I guess, um, so that you can then really apply it and turn it into kind of immediately turn it into more correct answers. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, uh, yeah at, at his level of scoring and having put in all the effort he's put in, I, I do think I would um, advise that he does that just even for an hour or two. Yeah, I agree. And I would get I, I again. This is also self-serving, but I, I you know I would not if I were him sign up with the Kaplan tutor who, who scored a one sixty eight on his actual test. Um, I would or instead, or one sixty four. Yeah, or one sixty four <laughs> on his actual test. Uh, I, I would definitely sign up with a tutor who has scored in the one seventies, uh, high higher the better, and. Um, you know, and somebody who does this professionally, you kind of get what you pay for, I think, when it comes to LSAT tutoring. And so, you know, and, and especially because, um, I don't know, Ben, we haven't talked about this very much, but I do a lot of tutoring where I'll only ever meet with the person for an hour or two. And like they'll they'll be like, oh my god, this changed everything. Thank you, and th- and then go on and just kill the test, and that's it. Uh, do you do you do that, or do you do more like extended working with people? Um, I would say it's more extended. Okay. I would say that there are definitely higher scores in which I've done that an hour or two here or there. Yeah. Um. There's more time in between the sessions, especially to for them to do more tests and to gather more questions is because they can figure out so many on their own. Yeah. But most of my students are are sort of repeat. Okay. Yeah, I mean students. I I do a mix of both, but I mean, especially with these high scoring students, I find that I, I do a lot of um I, I have a ninety minute consultation meeting that I do. And frequently that'll be the only meeting that we'll ever do and people will walk away with like feeling like they have a new approach to the test. So mm-hmm. um, I guess, uh, especially for, wait, it's a pseudonym. What are we calling him? Alex. Alex. Especially for Alex, uh, give it a shot with, you know, the best tutor you can find and um, and see if that kind of gets you where you need to go. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, okay, so yeah. or anything else? Sorry, I didn't mean no. To I think I think that's awesome. Good job, Alex. And I hope that you are successful in just legalizing marijuana. The the, the whole um, it, medical marijuana thing to me is so ridiculous because you know living in California and especially living in San Francisco, you know I have my medical marijuana card. Uh, everyone that I know has their medical marijuana card, and. It's let's be honest, okay. Yes, it is. It does have pain relieving properties or whatever, but that is not why most people that I know are using medical marijuana. <laughs> so I, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't have medicinal use, but what I am saying is 
it's fully legal now in Washington state, right? It's fully legal in Colorado. And I wish that California would have gone that route because now I'm worried that we're going to have this. Um, I'm worried that we're going to have this stupid medical fiction forever in California instead of just going ahead and legalizing it for real and just being, you know, commonsensical about the whole thing. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't have any opinion about medical marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did see, uh, so I'm in D.C. and uh, I've, I've noticed on the metro, we have these big ads in the metro now that say, join cannabis university classes or something. I have no idea. I have not did did DC pursue that but wait what <laughs> that'd be another good degree for you to get Ben yeah <laughs> did uh did DC legalize it as well I uh, from what I understand yes is I it just now is it medical or is it just totally legal now no I think it's I don't I don't know but I mean those things those signs started cropping up not too long ago so so are there storefronts and stuff can you just walk right in and go buy yourself a brownie and Go sit I, in the park? I honestly don't know, but I my life is basically get in the car in Vienna, Virginia, drive to D.C. when there's no traffic, and I'm just on the edge of the city, okay. which is nice because I don't have any traffic. So then I go into my parking garage and I go to my office. It's not a very... <laughs> You're not really in much of D.C. No, I'm not, I'm not visiting places very much, except for with the kids and we go to the Smithsonian uh, museums or something like that. So kind of... Uh, I don't know. I don't see a lot of cannabis there. All right. Well, listeners in D.C., I want to know what the weed situation is in D.C. Yeah, please. Not that I'm ever going to go to D.C., but please, please email us and let us know whether it's legal or you need a card or whatever. And for those of you who are curious, the way that I was able to get my card was because insomnia, which was first on the very helpful list of ailments <laughs> on, the, on the website of the doctor that I went to insomnia there was a the front page of the website had a big list of like 30 different qualifying ailments and the very first one was insomnia and i said oh i sometimes have trouble sleeping and so i rolled right into the the doctor and got my said insomnia and got my recommendation and that's that's it couldn't be easier oh good okay yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that you got that taken care of <laughs> and i sleep like a baby now no actually it's not true weed actually keeps me up uh, oh, okay. ironically <laughs> ironically it doesn't work at all for insomnia but it does qualify for your card for insomnia so anyways it's all a big joke and um but i'm glad i'm glad we've at least come this far i think we're going a lot farther in the next uh, 20 years cool yeah all right, so question number two is from Jordan. And Jordan says that he needs help with stamina and main point questions. In particular, he says, I wonder if you two have any tips for mental stamina while doing a full five-section prep test. I find that when I do one or two sections a day, I'm able to achieve a much higher score than when I sit down and do all five sections with a single regulation break. Ooh, I like that regulation. So the fifth single 15-minute uh, break between the third and fourth section. Yeah. Um, okay, so we'll, we'll go on to the next one soon here. But uh, any, any tips for increasing his mental stamina when he does a full five-section test? You know, what I always say is that the LSAT is not like breaking rocks. And I personally don't really believe that you can train for the stamina. I, I, I mean, I think 
Sure. Getting yourself used to sitting there for the full three hours or more or whatever it is, is great. And so the fact that he's doing five section prep tests, whatever, you know, I actually don't even in my classes, I don't even do five section tests. I only just do four section tests. I don't even bother with the experimental section. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> just because it feels like a waste of time to me. Um, but when, when I talk to students who complain of stamina issues, they universally, in my experience, are lacking in substantive understanding of the test. So, and this is just my view, but I think that the key to not getting tired at the end of the test is to make it so that the test isn't so taxing for you. And the way you do that is by understanding the test better. Because you know, Ben, if you sat down and did a test, you're not going to get tired at the end. And yeah. if I sat down and did a test, I'm not going to get tired at the end. But when's the last time I did a five section prep test? Never. You know, when's the the day I took it in February, June of two, February of 2007? That's the last time I took a, a five section test. Yeah. But I guarantee you, if I sat down right now and took the test, I'm not going to be tired. I could take a 10 section test and not be tired. And because I'm going to be sitting in a padded chair in an air conditioned room working on this little game that I'm really good at, that's just not going to be taxing for me. And I'm sure it's not going to be taxing for you either. And that's without doing any stamina training or anything like that. So I, I would say, you know, by all means, if you want to do some full tests, that's great. But what you really need to do is just review your mistakes and figure out why you're making the mistakes you're making and get better at the test. Because the better you get at the test, the less tiring it is going to be. Okay. Yeah, in my experience, I mean, I do do five section prep tests on yep. Saturdays, and but we start doing them every Saturday near the end. I do feel like there is something about the 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 length of the test that people get better at as they do more tests. Now, given what you're saying, it's entirely possible that they feel less tired only because they're getting better at the test itself because that's definitely happening as they're going through the class but i wonder how much of that is them getting better and how much of that is them getting used to sitting down for three and a half hours as opposed to 35 minutes or an hour i do feel like there could be something there and since the test is you know five sections actually six with the writing sample, that doesn't really matter. But the the five sections, that's why I go ahead and, and do the five sections, just to give them that same experience, I guess. Yeah, I I think that's totally fine. Um, I I wouldn't I wouldn't not do that. Um, but like you say, it's just impossible to tease out whether they're really just. We know that they are getting better at the fundamentals of the test. Uh, we don't know how much the stamina training for the stamina is actually helping them. Um, I'm open to the possibility. My, my hypothesis is that it doesn't do as much as most people think it does, but it, I mean, it certainly can't hurt, right? To sit for full tests. So mixing them in every once in a while does sound like a good plan. Yeah, uh, to to make uh, another side point here, which supports your position a little bit, I think, is that a lot of times people will do better on one logical reasoning section than the other, and maybe they do worse on the second one a couple times, 
and they start to think, oh, this is stamina. And I like to tell them that it certainly could be, but we'd want to see that on a lot more tests. And we'd kind of like to see that with um, different sections, whether that's reading comp or games, not something that's just logical reasoning, because I've seen them wait one logical reasoning section with a lot of inference questions and the other logical reasoning section without a lot of inference questions or necessary assumption questions or whatever and depending on what that person is good at they may just have not done as well on the last section precisely because it was harder for them yeah and so it's something that i think people tend to read into too much absolutely small small sample is what you're small saying sample yeah yeah i mean that happens all the time and it's I, it's just human nature you know we're a we're a curious bunch of little monkeys and we're like looking for explanations for for things and that's great but um it's just so easy to look at your test results and look at oh i did bad on the last two sections oh i must have run out of gas Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and you do on because of one test result or because of two test results. And um, yeah, no, let's talk after you've done 10 tests and then let's see if there still really is this fading out that's happening at the end of the test. Um, because it's, I can't tell you how many students I've had in equal measure. I've had a million students come to me and say, you know, Nathan, I'm thinking about uh, before the test, I'm going to do some warm up questions because I've noticed that I always do worse on the first section. And then I go, okay, how many tests in a row? And they're like one or two tests in a row where I had my worst section was the first section. And it's like, you know, okay, it's a hypothesis. It could be true that you really do need to warm up and that it takes you a little while to get going and fine. But you know, it's, it's an equally likely hypothesis that this is just, a small sample and that sure you're going to have one of your sections is going to be the worst one and if it's the first one that doesn't necessarily mean that you were slow to get going or if it's your last one it doesn't mean that you ran out of gas it just doesn't have to mean anything at all so more data required don't freak out and again you know i just listeners i never ever did a five section test before i sat for my real actual lsat i never did a single full-length practice test. I did a lot of 35-minute sections. I got really good at those 35-minute sections. And once I got good at those 35-minute sections, I was able to do good on five 35-minute sections in a row. Um, That's, you know, your experience may vary, but I just am not convinced that that the stamina thing is really that much of a thing. I mean... I'm I'm still inclined to say, yeah, go for it if you're worried about it. Just start doing five-section tests. Part of the reason I don't have a problem with them doing that extra section is that if they grab a section from a recent test in particular, then it's just, you know, it's just one more section that they now get to learn from, uh, from the questions and feel what it's like to do three sections back-to-back and then two more sections. I think this so- is... Now- yeah, sorry, ahead. sorry to interrupt. So do you mix in a experimental section then and don't tell them which section is the experimental section? At the beginning, they know that it, there is an experimental section and they know which one it is. But at the end, no, they don't. Um, and actually, I think it's for one of, I can't remember which test it is in the 70s, but it was just dumb luck because I didn't actually even think about where I was putting them. But there was one where there was three logical reasoning sections in a row. And... 
almost, I think the game section was last actually. So okay. it was reading comp and then three LR sections and then games. And, and people did say just that so much reading. There's, there's definitely, I think, a mental break that you can get from the games because yeah. it's using a different part of your brain. And by the time they were done with that four section, there was, that was brutal. <laughs> I just I turned to that fourth section. I was like, more reading, dang it, <laughs> you know. Um, so there there could be something to the the length. I think, well, at, at least uh, you know I should do that. You're more organized than I am. Um, I I should do that in my classes. But the the point, if I were to do that in my classes, I would be using it as an opportunity to give my kids a lecture about how. Again, I know I've said this a million times, but like listen your grandparents like actually worked for a living like used their body went out in the hot sun and you know picked uh strawberries off of the ground and for you know 50 cents a day and so like when i i just don't have sympathy i'm sorry but when you know oh you did a section of of reading comp and then you did three sections of logical reasoning oh oh my god that must have been so hard for you oh no oh and and the room was slightly too cold the air conditioning was blowing on you and you had to in the middle of section 3 you had to put your sweater on oh holy shit wow you know um it's it's like i just come on man up people <laughs> like stop I don't. I just don't want to hear you bitching about how the LSAT is so taxing and FML and everything else. It's um, you're you're extremely privileged to be doing this, and you you know yeah like get your grandparents or your great grandparents and you tell explain to them how how hard it is when you have three sections of logical reasoning in a row. <laughs> You know, like, yeah, yeah, okay. You, <laughs> that's great. I think I might be a little me. more sympathetic, but that's 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 cool. I, I do see what you're saying. There is a perspective thing. I just actually uh finished, I don't know if I mentioned this. I was listening to the audiobook The Boys in the Boat. Have you ever heard of this? No, uh, -uh. it's about um this guy, Joe. Um, oh, shoot, it's a true story. And in any case, when he was 12, his family had to leave for very reasons and they they left him alone to grow up on his own and it's the whole story about how he um, was really poor and survived in this house they left him with the the house um but they they left him there and then he went on to uh, washington state university i believe and joined the row team and the difficulties that he had like just doing row i didn't realize or crew i didn't realize that that was so tough. But anyways, uh, his whole experience there, and then eventually his team went to the 1936 uh, Berlin Olympics and, and won. And the whole like race itself is famous because they started late, they were in the worst lane, and all these things that happened. Um, and, of course, in the context of right before World War II. You, you read that book and you're like, okay, yeah, um, all my problems are pretty much not problems, so I'm gonna. That's the boys in the boat. That's a book, right? Yeah, it's a book. It's okay. a very, it's a very motivating book. Cool. Um, yeah, because I, you're just, yeah, he just works so hard. Yeah, I put it on. I put it on my list. I mean, for me, it's like the grapes of wrath. Uh, John Steinbeck. I love that book. Um, personally, that's like where my family came from. You know, I'm in California, and my my family, my grandparents, like moved out here. 
uh, in the 30s and 40s, uh, basically like looking for a better life for themselves, where they're you know they were ha- they were happy to pick strawberries off the ground for 50 cents an hour or 50 cents a day or whatever it was, because in Oklahoma and Kansas um, and Arkansas there just was no work at all, and people were literally hungry. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know so. Okay, you're right that if you did complain to your Nana about having to do three sections in a row of uh, logical reasoning, I hope that she's more sympathetic than I am. But, um, you know, I wouldn't blame her if she was like, oh, shut up, I had to work for a living. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it, you're, you're not going <laughs> to... Taking the LSAT is not going to break your body down and make you an prematurely old and permanently hunched over. It's yeah. like, again, again, I, I know I keep saying it, but you're in an air conditioned room, you're sitting on a padded chair and you're using your brain to play this silly little game that we call the LSAT. And, um, you know, even if it's five sections in a row, that's still five times 35 minutes is three hours. And, ooh, wow, boy, that must have been really tough for you. <laughs> Um, when people used to like work 10 hours a day, seven days a week in the hot sun, just so that they could like feed their family. So I don't know. I mean, my, my two cents is get some perspective, stop bitching. Oh, and by the way, if, if you don't want to do this, you don't have to do this. There's a million other things that you could do with your life. So stop fucking complaining about it. You're, you're lucky to be here. And if you don't believe that you're lucky to be here, then go go do anything else with your life. You have all of the opportunity in the world. You're a young person with a bachelor's degree living in the richest culture that has ever lived on the face of the planet. So figure it out. And if you want to go open up a hot dog stand instead, go open up a hot dog stand. But definitely don't bitch to me about how hard it is. Cool. <laughs> that said, think- I'm here to help. <laughs> Email me. <I'll- laughs> Yes, I would love to work with you. Just don't <laughs> fucking complain to me. All right. Um, all right, so the other part of Jordan's question. <laughs> yeah. where, is that who we're on? We're on Jordan, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, he says, for the main point in reading comp, treat the reading comp passage like a main point question in logical reasoning. Wait, what's this? Oh, this is no. what I said. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting I myself. Yes, you're right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, let me go to his question. So I know that the two of you have spoken about this on the podcast previously, but I was wondering what the best strategy is for differentiating between the topic in reading comp versus the main point. Nathan, I know you suggest to ask the author, why are you wasting my time with this? So he's quoting you here for a main point question. But I find that when I attempt to answer that question, I am commonly confusing it with giving an explanation of the passage topic. So I will... Why don't you take it away here since he's kind of building off of your advice? Okay. I mean, I think you're going to have actually some practical advice on this, so I'll, I'll try to keep it short. But I used to be a power score teacher, and they had all of these crazy acronyms for different, you know, I can't even remember what they were. Um, something, ah, I'm not even going to try to remember what they were, but it was all these acronyms for all the things that you're supposed to be looking for when you read the, the reading comp passages. And to me, it's all bullshit. Um, I do not even know the difference between a main point question and a topic question. It, for me, I don't think there is a difference. I think for me on the reading comprehension, the goal is, did you comprehend the passage? 
and that doesn't mean memorize, that just means did you understand what the big idea was? Do you know what they were talking about? And do you know why they thought it was important? And if you get that, if you comprehended the passage, then when they ask you what was the main point, you should be able to tell them, you should be able to answer that without looking at the answer choices. And this, the top, I don't even know what he's talking about. Maybe you can enlighten me, Ben, but is there a question that asks you about the topic? Uh, I think he's referring to something that I've mentioned before, so maybe I said it on the podcast, I can't remember now, but sometimes when I ask people for the main point, they give me the topic. And so instead of saying that this person wants to save Bengal tigers or whatever the main point is of the passage or that we should save Bengal tigers. Oh, they'll tigers, say, well, Bengal tigers. Yes, yes. They'll say some, which is super easy, right? You don't even have to read the passage to figure out what the topic is. You could scan over, see a couple words and be like, well, it looks like they're talking about Bengal tigers a lot here. So um, that's not the main point. The main point is much more specific than that. It's it's something that the author is either trying to prove or trying to convey to us yeah. or right. whatever. So, so then, I mean, yeah, I think then my little strategy of asking the author, why are you wasting my time with this is, I think, should be helpful for Jordan then. Because the when you ask the author, why are you wasting my time with this? They're not gonna come back with Bengal tigers. Yeah. They're going to come back with Bengal tigers are really important and should be saved and here's how we should do it. Mm -hmm. I mean that's that's why are you wa why are you wasting my time with this? Well dude, I wanted to tell you that we need to save the Bengal tiger and here's how we're going to do it. Not why are you wasting my time with this um Bengal tigers. So, um I don't know, to me I I guess I I still don't fully understand the question um when so cuz cuz to quote Jordan directly, we get when I, f I find that when I attempt to answer that question, which is the main point question, I'm commonly confusing it with giving an explanation of the passage topic. But if you're picking an, that's just, you're just picking a wrong answer. I mean, you're picking an answer that might have some of the words from the argument in it. Like the answer might say Bengal tigers, but it's going to say a bunch of other shit that is not related to the author's main point, right? The, I mean, <laughs> the answer doesn't, the, the wrong answer does not, does not just say Bengal tigers. It says Bengal tigers, blah, 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 something that's not actually the main point of the of the passage. I mean, it probably says something that is like a premise of the passage or part of the passage. And maybe that's what he's... I guess maybe that's what... By. Yeah, maybe that's what he, he means. So, right, when when you... On a main point question, I mean, you're picking the one that most fully expresses why the author wrote the piece that you're reading. What is their main point? What is their primary thesis? Why did they waste your time with this? So I think frequently the wrong answers are going to be part of the argument, but not the main point of the argument itself. Yep. And so the one that you need to pick is the one that answers the question, why are you wasting my time with this? The way I like it to use a metaphor of, you know, you're in a law firm, you're a baby lawyer, your asshole of a boss comes rolling through the office and throws some big thing on your desk, 10 page thing on your desk and says, what is this shit? I don't have time to read this. Come tell me, you know, one hour, my office, I want to know what this is. Throw it on your desk and then cruise on to the office, right? And go practice his putting stroke in the office. 
-hmm. then you that's your job now is to read this 10 page thing and then go in and summarize it for the boss well that's what the main point question is asking you to do in the reading comprehension is boil it all down to one sentence and that's the main point I don't know. What else do you have to say about that? Yeah, well, um, in terms of the specific things that I do as I go through the passage, as I'm reading the passage, I am, my, my number one goal, and this gets back to your point about comprehension, is to just understand it. A lot of times I think people are reading and they're trying to read quickly, which is confusing the, the goal of finishing with the goal of actually understanding the passage which is what will actually help you finish it but yeah i try to understand it and and then i do take note of sort of i mean this happens i think sort of naturally when you do understand the passage but when you understand what a sentence is saying you it's pretty obvious whether it's the author talking or the author quoting someone else and i feel like those are the most common kinds of sentences you're going to see in reading comp either the author is telling you something from their own voice or they're quoting someone else. And and when they okay. do quote someone else, I notice that often right after they finish quoting that person or that theory or whatever, they'll often comment on it. They may not, but they often do. And that's where, at least a lot of times, I see the author's opinions, um, attitudes, and so forth about the topic, about what they're talking about, starts to get revealed. They either say, hey, it's a good thing or it's a bad thing or unfortunately these people are wrong or rightly yep. they say this. And so those that's something I keep in mind. And then when I do feel like the main point is said, I'll sometimes write a little MP to the side of the passage. I don't really write anything, but I'll, I will sometimes write an MP. And, and sometimes I'm wrong. I get to the end of the paragraph or the end of the passage. Yeah. And say, Wait a this that's is actually... actually- Okay, go ahead. I was, well, yeah, I mean, I was saying that to a to a student, um, a tutoring student yesterday, who she's a pretty high performing student, but she said that she would miss, you know, on average, like miss five or six on the reading comprehension. And I was asking her if she writes anything as she's reading the passages. And she said, well, sometimes I'll, I'll underline the main point. And, you know, I thought about it for a minute and I said, um, but you don't know whether it was the main point until you're done reading the passage. Yeah. Right? Because you you could think it's the main point, but then in the last paragraph the author might completely shift gears on you. Certainly. So I am um I don't write anything when I do the reading comprehension. I just read it and try to comprehend it. But I am really hungry for the author's main point and I'm I'm pretty aggressively looking for that. The way that I do it is I ask the author why are you wasting my time with this or where are you going with this? And I like to make little predictions as I read. I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I'll stop after two sentences at the very top and I'll try to make a prediction about what's likely to come next. And the point of making that prediction is not necessarily to be right or wrong, but the point is to make sure that you're following along at least enough that you are able to try to make a prediction about what's going to come next. Frequently you'll be wrong, but then you'll go, oh, I thought you were going to say ABC, but it turns out that you decided to say XYZ instead. And at some point, the author might say um, something that gives you an understanding of whether the author thinks that this whole thing is a good idea or the author thinks that this whole thing is a bad idea or the author favors plan B over plan A. And that's where you go, oh, I see why you're wasting my time with this. You came here today to tell me that you think that plan A is a bad idea and plan B is a good idea. Yeah. 
And then now, you know, and you're not sure that that's the main point until you get to the very end. But you get to the very end and you kind of cover up the page and you think like, okay, well, what's the big picture here? And then you, you make a summary of this is what I think the main point was. And yeah, that's going to be the answer to that main point question, which is guaranteed going to be there. Yeah. So that, I mean, I do write the MP, the, those little letters to the side as that's my prediction. And I treat it as that. And that's why sometimes I get to the end. And I say, oh, wait a sec here. This is actually something that's being supported by what they said earlier. So that was an intermediate conclusion if you want to think about it in the context sure. of logical reasoning. But I'll go back and cross that out. But it's part of my sort of active reading in the sense that I'm saying, oh, I think this sounds like what they're trying to prove. And then I expect them to go on and provide evidence for that. But if they don't or if they go on and start going to a new topic, then yeah. I might change that. But So when you write the MP, it's almost like a there's a implied question mark at the end of that. There is. Where it's and, like, I wonder if this is the main point. So that when I get done, I can say, if it, if it really was, like the passage conformed to my predictions, then I know where it is. And it's not exactly, I don't want to suggest that you can always do that because the main point is, I don't, I don't feel like it's actually very frequently stated explicitly it's more no. a collection of ideas I right. feel like, oh this is where the, the main point is either implied or, or pretty this seems like the, the why he's wasting our time with this and so then i write the mp and then sometimes i'm wrong but that's the only thing i'm writing down i see a lot of people writing down a lot more things and i feel like we only have eight minutes this is yeah not that not not that scribbling little notes here and there necessarily takes that much time if it helps you understand the passage then maybe it's actually a good thing for you but um we only have eight minutes so all this stuff is going to be in short-term memory anyway so i feel like i unless the writing is something somehow helping you understand but i feel like what really helps with understanding maybe just deciding what to write oh i figured out what this paragraph is saying done i don't need to actually write it down if it if it helps you, then by all means. Um, but you know, most people that I've worked with who have who have written stuff, like the reason why I'm working with them is because they don't really they're not doing very well. And so I always challenge people to just like, why don't you do an experiment on your next few tests and not write anything at all, but as you read, instead go into this more conversational kind of debate oriented, uh, <clears throat> more a different kind of active reading where you're you're really trying to just engage with the author and listen to them and understand what they're saying. Yeah. Um, because the underlining and all the little notes and stuff, if it helps, great. But if it helps, you're probably not talking to us. So, yeah, I don't know. Try it, try it both ways and see which, which one works, I guess. So this is, I don't mean to go on a tangent too much here, but I was reading about reading the other day. I was just curious, uh, are there books out there on how to read convoluted sentences, not just okay. how to read. And I didn't come across any books, but I did come across a website that I thought was interesting. They they said there were three levels of reading, and I had never really thought about this before. It just, I, it, it made sense though, I think. And that is, the, they said the first level of reading is where you you read a sentence and you understand all the words in the sentence, but okay. don't necessarily understand the, the the full meaning of the sentence. Like there's okay. some clarity there, but not entirely. The second level was you read the sentence and you understand the ideas 
the, the core idea behind the sentence. You can actually visualize what they're saying. And the third level of reading is where you visualize what you're reading. It, it really clicks with you and you engage with it in the sense that you're now analyzing. You say, okay, well, I see that you said this person is angry. Um, I'm surprised that they're angry because they nothing happened to them or what you know there's there's just this, this yeah, level and, of interaction that i guess a lot of I, apparently there are different levels of reading and people aren't getting to that third level where they're really taking in what they're reading and thinking about it and on the l side it's maybe even another level on top of that which is not just you know i wonder why the subject of this passage felt the way they felt but i wonder why the author of this passage felt that it was important to tell me why the subject of this passage felt the way they felt sure right like that's and that's where the why are you wasting my time with this i feel like that gets you kind of into the fourth level of reading immediately that that really is i mean that's how i'm engaging with the passage right i'm not just thinking about what are you talking about that's the topic I'm thinking about why are you talking about what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. What is the point here that you're trying to prove? Where are you going with this? And so that's where <clears throat> I want I want people to be, you know, feel like you're debating with the author or feel like you're uh, maybe the author is your client that just comes rolling into your office with this big sob story and you're trying to sort out, you know, what, what, what actually happened and why they're in your office. Um, some, something like that. So yeah, it, it, I, I like that idea of different levels of, of reading and we, yeah, we need to be going to the, the most engaged level that we can possibly find. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, anything else on reading? No, I think we killed that one. I think we can definitely move on. Sure. So, by the way, when do you have to go? Do you have to go? No, somewhere? I got time. We This is going to be an extended episode, I think. But yeah, let's, okay. let's keep going. Okay. So question three is from Michael, who wants help with what he calls our required assumptions. I would call those necessary assumptions. I think you call them necessary assumptions as well, right? The makers of the test call them necessary assumptions. So yeah, uh -oh. I think we should probably call them necessary assumptions. <laughs> there you go. Um, required it totally works, of course, because it's the same idea. It's necessary or required. But he does have a good grasp of the difference between sufficient and required or necessary assumptions. He says, I know or think that the answer to sufficient questions will leave the arguments reasoning with no gaps and that required questions or necessary questions, answer choices must be true for the argument to reach the conclusion. But I have a nah. serious... I don't like the way he's saying that, but go ahead, go ahead. Okay, uh, I'm curious why you think that, but um, well, let's pause right there. Why do you, yeah, what, what do you have, what do you take issue with that? To me, that seems like an accurate description. I just think, you know, and I'm the reason why I'm nitpicking here is because Michael is telling us that he's having a problem with mm -hmm. these necessary assumption questions. Sure. So I think that he describes sufficient assumption questions perfectly, which is this will leave the arguments reasoning with no gaps. The okay. way the way I like to say that is which one on a sufficient assumption question you're looking for which one if true makes the argument win. Okay? Which one, if true, makes the argument win? And on the LSAT, that's a very specific thing. In order to make an argument win, you have to just take the premises plus the correct answer, and that leads 
unavoidably to the conclusion that the argument was trying to prove. That's what it means to make the argument win. So sufficient assumption questions are much easier, <clears throat> or, or sufficient assumption questions are pretty easy because if you can spot the evidence and you can spot the conclusion, then you can almost always, for me, it doesn't matter how hard of a sufficient assumption question it is, I can almost always predict the answer before okay. looking at the answer choices. Yeah, I agree. Okay? I do the I've, same thing. I force great. myself to predict it yes. if I haven't. So I, Absolutely. In fact, right, I might read the – and this happens actually on, on harder ones. It happens pretty frequently that I'll read the argument and I'll go, you know, that was a pretty tight – that seems like it might be a valid argument. But then the question will say, which one of the following, um, <clears throat> if assumed – would allow the conclusion to be properly drawn and i'll go oh shit that's a sufficient assumption question that means that there is a missing premise which we need in order to, if we add this premise to the argument then it'll prove the conclusion of the argument and then absolutely cover up the answer choices i i am not going to go look into those answer choices before i predict you know i'm going to look again at the argument and i'm going to try to find that gap and then the correct answer is the one that's going to plug that gap so that it proves the conclusion Yep. Okay, so that's sufficient assumption questions. Again, the shortcut is on a sufficient assumption question, which one, if true, makes the argument win? Mm -hmm. On necessary assumption questions, I'll just go straight to the shortcut here. On necessary assumption questions, I'm looking for which one, if false, makes the argument lose? Okay. Okay? Again, sufficient assumption questions. Which one, if true, makes the argument win? necessary assumption questions which one if false makes the argument lose and so um, what happens on necessary assumption questions is that there's a much much broader range of possible answers because anytime you make an argument there's like infinite ways that you can lose sure so what I the the issue that I have with the way Michael has articulated this he says, again, I'll, I'll read what Michael said. He said, necessary questions, uh, the answer choices must be true for the argument to reach the conclusion. Yep. And so what I worry about is that he's kind of confusing it on necessary assumption questions. We're not worried about reaching the conclusion. We're worried about which one, if false, would make the argument fail. So... I so think he, hold on. So yeah. technically, what he's written here is absolutely correct. Right? No, I disagree. No, it is. It is because it's. I think what's more fundamental to the issue here is the is the phrase "must be true." That's what makes this correct because we are looking for something that must be true. Right. Okay. Right. But it's the rest of what he's saying there that I think is confusing him. It's confusing, but it's technically accurate, right? Because okay. it's, it is something that you need. To reach the conclusion, even if it doesn't help you actually reach it. Yes, but that's not a helpful way to think about the question. <laughs> okay, <laughs> he, I mean, he might he might be technically correct, but it's not helping him to reach the correct answers. That's why he's missing so many necessary assumption questions. Yeah, it it. So the question is, should we re? I mean, I think it's good to rephrase it in the negative, but I do find that sometimes when people go through the answer choices. If they think about it in the negative, that helps them see the correct answer. But sometimes it also helps them to just think about it in terms of must be true. I think he, he just may... mm. Go ahead. He needs to cut out the, the part when you're looking at a necessary assumption question. Yes, you are looking for something that must be true or, or else the argument will fail. Yeah. But he needs, to say, he needs to phrase it that way in order to better understand 
the nature of the question and in order to open himself up to all of these crazy answers that might actually have nothing to do with reaching the conclusion of the argument. Well, see, I, I guess I disagree because it it is true that it it's an answer choice that must be true for the argument to reach the conclusion. And so I think he needs to understand what it means to say must be true with that goal in mind. Because <laughs> Okay. Let me just give you an example. Yeah. Okay. okay. Suppose, um, you know, it's a sunny day in San Francisco. And suppose I were to say, um, <clears throat> the sun just came out. Therefore, the wind must have blown the clouds away. Okay. That's an argument, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. It's a cause and effect argument. Yep. Okay. My purported cause there is the wind. The effect is the sun came out. Mm-hmm. And that's my argument. Yep. Um, with with that argument and with any argument, you can say, Nathan, you have necessarily assumed that Martians did not come down from Venus and shoot laser beams out of their butt and blow the clouds away. That's okay. a necessary assumption of that argument. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's helpful for him to think in terms of this must be true in order for the argument to reach the conclusion. And I don't think it just doesn't make sense that, well, in order to reach my conclusion, it must be true that Martians did not come down from Venus with and shoot ray beams out of their butt. That doesn't help. It does. It does make sense. And I think it's important because it can limit the answer choices to things that are actually necessary assumptions as opposed to things that just must be true. In other words, things that you might infer from the passage, but don't necessarily uh, relate to the conclusion. My point is, my point is, it is a necessary assumption of the argument that I just made that Martians did not shoot ray beams out of their butt and move the clouds away. That's a necessary assumption of my argument. Yeah. But the reason why that's a necessary assumption of that argument is because if that's false, then Martians did shoot ray beams out of their butt and move the clouds away. And if that's true, then my argument loses. Okay, sure. And so I my I think, this mm-hmm. is my hypothesis, and I okay. could definitely be wrong, but I think <laughs> the reason why Michael is missing necessary assumption questions is that he's trying to pick answers that help the argument. And instead, he should be picking answers that, if false, hurt the argument. Okay, my theory, and I could be wrong, is that he's missing these because he's not understanding what it means to be necessary. And so you're, I mean, I guess we're, we're saying the same thing. I'm attacking it in a different way. I'm saying go ahead and leave on for the argument to reach the conclusion. Um, and you're saying that's distracting. Don't think about that. I, I'd like to hear back. I mean, Michael, please email us. Um, I, I, the way I'd like to phrase it again, mm-hmm. I'll say it one final time. Hopefully sure. I won't say it again <laughs> for sufficient assumption questions. I'm looking for which one, if true, makes the argument win. Okay. And for necessary assumption questions, I'm looking for which one, if false, makes the argument lose. And the reason why that is helpful is because necessary assumption questions, there are infinite ways that you can lose an argument. And so it's not so much about plugging the gap and helping the argument win. That's what we do on a sufficient assumption question. Mm-hmm. On a necessary assumption question, it's about identifying which one of these five things had better goddamn be true or else we're going to lose. 
And even if it's true, it doesn't necessarily, though, help us win. It's which one, if false, makes us lose. That's true. I agree. I agree 100%. Okay. Good. I just, I just don't have any problem saying for the argument to reach the conclusion. Because it is still something that must be true for that goal, even though it might not achieve that goal. So I would spend a lot of time trying to explain why something is necessary uh, versus sufficient. So, for example, it must be true for you to reach law school to take the LSAT, but just because you've taken it doesn't mean you'll actually reach law school. So I feel like people can understand that even with that phrase tacked on there for you know you to reach law school or reach yeah. your conclusion. Yeah, I in, in my experience, the the easiest way to miss necessary assumption questions, or the easiest way to um to like sometimes people will be like, what? How was this a necessary part of the argument? And they just don't get it until they negate the answer choice and they see that it turns the answer choice into this devastating weakener that will kill the argument. Yeah. So well, I'm not saying go through and negate all five answers. What I am saying is think about which one of these five would be a problem if it weren't true. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I definitely agree with the negation technique and everything that you're saying. So I would, I just don't have as much of a problem with the way he's phrased this. I all right. Well, there you go, Michael. I hope that was helpful. Um, <laughs> please, I mean, I really would love to hear back. So um, it's help at thinkinglsat.com. You can email Ben and I both at the same time. Sure. So uh, ben, to, ben to, and me. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, this this show is always grammatically correct. By the yeah. Way. Right. <laughs> um, so I would just add to this. He, he asked, I would like to ask you guys for some strategies or tips to eliminate wrong answers and locate the right ones with better success. And that's what we've been talking about a lot. Yeah. And you've, you've clarified very well. The only thing I would add to this is because you're looking for something, and I'm sure you've said this before too, Nathan, when, because you're looking for something that absolutely must be true, without it, the argument fails, the stronger the answer choice, the less likely that answer has to be true. So if you're debating between two or three answers, hopefully just two, but if you're debating between answer choices, zero in on the strength of those answers to see whether one of them is too strong. It goes too far. It uses a word like yep. all or only or sometimes yep. most. And you say, wait a sec, this, does this have to be true that every single alien came from Mars? What if one of them, just one of them came from Neptune, would that be a problem? No, it wouldn't. Then this yeah. is not necessary. So watch out for strongly worded answers. Don't On necessary assumption questions. For necessary yeah. assumptions. It's completely opposite yeah. for sufficient, but um, watch out for strongly worded answers. Do not make that your number one goal, though. So right. many people make that their number one goal, and they're not thinking about the content. That's not, not step thinking. one. That's no. not step one. That's at the end, if you're debating between two, uh, as long as you understand what it what you're looking for in terms of must be true or without it it will fail, um, then I think that tip can become very helpful in the context. But don't just think yeah. about that alone. So right, just to summarize again on sufficient assumption questions, uh, this is like the second or third or fourth level of your analysis. Okay, if you narrow it down to a fifty-fifty on a sufficient assumption question, and you got two answers that you think either one—you know—I think both of these, one either one of these has got to be the right answer. One of these is sufficient, and the other one's not. 
at that point, yeah, the bigger the hammer, the the better your chances of proving the argument to be correct. So on sufficient assumption questions, I would prefer answers that are more strongly stated and less um, relative and less qualified, right? I want something that like absolutely applies all the time. Yeah. That would be a great answer for a sufficient assumption question. Yes. On a necessary assumption question, because necessary assumption questions are closely related to must be true questions, we're looking for an answer that has to be true or else the argument fails. And yeah, there um, must be true questions definitely prefer more weakly stated, more relative, more qualified, just softer stated answers. Um, so that's if you narrowed it down to a 50-50 on a necessary assumption question, then yeah, maybe pick the one that has that softer kind of a feel to it. Cool. Great. So um, the next question is from Christopher. I'm assuming we're good with necessary assumptions. I think that sounds good. Yeah, we got two more two more questions we can hammer hammer okay. out here. So Christopher was listening to I think our last episode, okay. episode thirty five, and he said, um, "I was wondering. Well, let me just actually read this question. Why do you guys suggest to do timed practice from the beginning? I have never heard that before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> why not? Sure. Why not?" Did you like that? See that? Judo? I just avoided the whole thing. <laughs> now, Christopher, we are waiting for your response, and we'll go on to the next question. Um, I would... I uh, So I do think that there is less time to practice at the beginning. There's more, let's do stuff untimed, individual questions, for example, individual games, try to figure out the process, try to understand what's going on. But I still definitely think people should take times tests uh, at the beginning for a couple of reasons. One, they can understand what the heck they're doing all this individual practice for. They can understand, I think, the goal and yeah. why they're eventually going to need to move quickly. Not that they should move quickly at first. They need to focus on accuracy, but they need to understand that there is a reason for all of these little things that we're talking about. The second thing I would say is that if you're afraid I shouldn't say afraid. I'm sorry. He's not saying afraid at all here, but a lot of times people don't want to take a timed test or a timed section at the beginning because I think they're afraid. They're afraid of the score they're going to get. And if you're afraid of the score you're, get, you're going to get on any test you take, whether that's at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end, I honestly think you're thinking about the LSAT in, the to in a totally wrong way. You take tests and you take time sections to learn from them. You make mistakes to figure out where you suck so that you can then fix that. It's, it's all about learning. It's not about an assessment of who you are or anything like that. The, the sooner you can get over that fear and start just looking at time sections and time tests as opportunities to learn and make mistakes deliberately. Get on your bike, fall down, get back up again. That sort of thing is what's going to push you forward. So... I would yeah, say if I, you're hesitant at the beginning, that's all the more reason to take one. Sorry, anyways, go ahead. Totally. I don't know that I can put it any better than that. I love the bike metaphor. Um, the best way to learn how to ride a bike is just to get on the thing and do it. We are not going to sit down and read some theoretical treatise on you know, physics, fundamental principles of bicycle riding. Uh, what you need to do is you need to get on the bike and try it. And you're going to crash a couple times and you're going to learn from your mistakes. 
Yep. You know, the best way to learn how to swim, you take little babies and, yeah, you're not going to drown them. You're there to, to save them or whatever, but you take a little baby and just dunk them right under the water. And next thing you know, they're swim like a fish. <laughs> and, I mean, they do. They do. Yeah. And and it's it's we're not providing any baby uh, swimming technique advice here, by the way. Just no, or baby way yeah. babysitting services either. Um, <laughs> if, baby drowned because of you, Nathan. <laughs> it, I, I, you know. I'm, if you're not doing a timed 35 minute section, then you're not actually doing the LSAT. So you need to just jump right in. There is no shortage of tests. You're never going to run out. If you run out, you can start over from the beginning and you won't remember any of the questions. So um, go ahead and grab a test, put 35 minutes on the clock and do a section. And 35 minutes from now, you won't be an LSAT virgin anymore. But until you sit down and do that actual section or do that actual full test, you haven't actually really done the LSAT. So let's get cracking. And yeah, like you say, Ben, it's not people are afraid like, well, I don't want to I don't want to set myself up for I don't want to think that I'm a big loser by by having a bad score on my first attempt. Well, people improve their LSAT score by 10, 20, 30 points. So I don't I don't give a shit what your score is on the first night of class. I mean, I, I'm not going to make any judgments of, on you about your score on the first night of class, but we do need to be realistic and let's do a test and let's see where we're at and let's make a bunch of mistakes. And then we immediately will start learning from those mistakes. Um, I think you don't learn as much if you don't do a real timed question and try to get it right. Yeah. You know, you're invested, right? And so go ahead and get yourself invested and do your best and see how you do. And tomorrow you're going to do better. But I, I really believe that you need to build your, the, the foundation of your LSAT prep starting from day one needs to be timed practice tests and timed sections. And then you make mistakes and you review and you learn from your mistakes and you get a little bit better every day. Now, I do think that at the beginning, especially... I would encourage people to do a lot of untimed questions, targeted questions between those sections and do a lot more of that at the beginning and then over time do less and less of the stuff in between the drilling as you start doing more and more just time sections and time practice tests. Um, do you do you suggest that as well in between the time sections at the beginning to do targeted stuff, whether that's games or logical reasoning or whatnot? I, I think you can do um, untimed review of the work that you did timed. Um, and sure, if you want to grab my logical reasoning encyclopedia or if you want to grab some other book and do some untimed practice in between your timed tests, that's fine. But I just... I worry that people um, do untimed practice as kind of a procrastination technique okay. from doing the real-timed practice. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, you know, that untimed or that focused stuff that people do, it's just you're not – it's not really doing the operation that you're going to have to do when you do the actual test. So, for example, you know, doing 10 grouping logic games in a row – yeah, that might be good, but you're not there. You're not practicing the real skill of analyzing what type of a game this is and figuring out what type of a solution is going to be good for this type of game, which is going to be a necessary skill when you sit and take the actual test. 
Uh, so, I, I agree with that actually 100%. And I yeah. do have people do games based on their difficulty level. So I have them, it's, they have no idea what type it is, but they were starting groups, with the yeah. easier games. But yeah, um, okay, I, I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess, I think more than anything, again, I'm going to go back to my initial response to Christopher, which was just why not? Um, because if you sit down and read a 500 page, you know, theory book about the LSAT, to me, that's just wasting time. And what you really should do is just go ahead and let's do a 35 minute section and then let's talk about your mistakes. Yes. Because that's, I think that's where you're going to make the fastest progress. I do think that theory does come into play, but it comes into play in the context of reviewing questions. Exactly. I, I think sometimes people... They get the right answer and they say, oh, I got the right answer. But do you know why? If you don't know why, you're not going to be able to repeat that. So theory does come into play, but it's really in the it, it, the back burner. It's at the back seat of having done actual questions. Whether we're talking about timed or untimed, we're, we're always moving from questions to trying to understand them, not yeah. understanding I mean, to questions. Our long-ass discussion of sufficient versus necessary assumptions that we did just a minute ago you know, that's completely worthless unless people have actually encountered sufficient and necessary assumption questions. Yeah. So a certain way to encounter sufficient and necessary assumption questions is to just grab any 35-minute section of the LSAT, put 35 minutes on the clock, and do it. And then you're going to make some mistakes, and some of those mistakes are going to be sufficient and necessary assumption questions. Mm -hmm. And then you can listen to our whole long-ass discussion of sufficient and necessary assumptions, and it'll actually make sense to you. Yeah. Rather than us just lecturing you from, you know, the mountain about theory about the LSAT. I, I just, we are blessed with these 70-something super expensive prep tests that we, you know, that we get the privilege of paying the LSAC for. But I, I'm saying that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but we can just use these tests as the foundation of our study. Yep. And I, I really think that's the best way to do it. Now, if this was... I don't know, the GMAT, and there were only three practice tests available, then I might say, oh boy, we better save those and use those for diagnostic purposes. But on the LSAT, you can use your tests not only for diagnostic purposes, but also for actual learning purposes. Yep. Okay. I agree. Cool. Okay, so last one is Courtney. Did Courtney write on our blog, email us, or email you? I, I don't remember. Courtney emailed me. Okay, cool. Yeah. So... Let's see here. Do you want to read what yeah. she has to say? Yeah. She's, there's a few issues here that I think are interesting. She's asking specifically about letters of recommendation. And, you know, I'm not a law school admissions expert, and uh, Ben's not a law school admissions expert. We are LSAT experts. However, we do work with literally hundreds of applicants, and we have quite a few tips, I think, about letters of recommendation that we sure. can talk about. So um, she says, uh, graduated from a UC in 2012, working as an analyst and an associate for a mid-market investment banking firm, definitely wants to go to law school, plans to apply this fall. Dilemma, who should I ask for recommendations? honors at her university of california graduated in three years but didn't spend a significant amount of time with any one professor there's only one professor that she had more than one class with and she says she spent more quality time with her tas but this was four more than four years ago and she never had more than one class with any of the tas she says i think my work would write me an excellent letter of recommendation but i'm not in a position where i am able to tell them that i am applying which, by the way, right there, I would say, fuck you to the job. Um, <laughs> I would. 
I would like to keep my job and I don't want to have that conversation until I definitively know where I am going. Question is, who should someone like me ask for recommendations? Professors who don't know me very well. I'm also curious about your thoughts on obtaining letters of recommendation from family, friends, or relatives who attended law schools that I am interested in. Are these letters still useful even though they cannot really attest to my academic abilities in the classroom or workplace? A lot of issues there. Um, I guess I'll just start since I already dropped the F-bomb about it. Sure. Uh, this thing, I, I get this a lot from young people saying like, well, I, I want to ask, I know my job would write me a great letter of recommendation, but I don't want to ask them because I'm worried that I'm going to lose my job or whatever. <sighs> First of all, I'm sorry that people are such dicks out there in the world. I can't believe that that's actually the case. I can just, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like as a boss to have someone, a young person that I really like and that I respect and who I want to help in the world. And yeah, I like that they're working for me and yeah, I want them to keep working for me. But now they come and tell me, hey, I'm applying to law school. Would you write me a letter of recommendation? And I'm going to fire them for that? That's crazy. Is that, is that really what's going on out there? Because I mean, I guess it could happen, but it just seems, I feel like it's the norm. I think that you expect people, especially younger people, to be working at your place for a certain amount of time, but then to be going on to other opportunities, even if that's not law school, just something else in the field. I, I, I don't know if this is happens. It seems like investment banking is a common place where this happens. And this okay. might just be like the culture of investment banking where it's like you're either all in on the team or else we don't want you here. Yeah. And so maybe that's maybe it is legitimate that she's really worried that if she asks her boss for a letter of recommendation, she's going to actually get fired. But if that's the case, I'm sorry. And if I were you, I would quit that job immediately just because because fuck that life is too short to be in a culture where, you know, these people aren't going to just be human with you. Um, so wait, would they write her a good recommendation? She says that they she thinks that they would. Right. So they must. She says she's certain. So they like her. She says, oh, well, she doesn't say I'm certain. Sorry. She says, well, I think my work would write me an excellent letter of recommendation. She wants to keep her job and she doesn't want to have that conversation because blah, blah, blah. She essentially, she's saying she thinks she's going to get fired. So. Which <laughs> is nuts. That's nuts to me. Can you imagine? Oh, I have this employee. I really like them. But then they tell me that they want a letter of recommendation for law school. And it's like, yeah. I will write you a really great letter and you're fired. I don't want you to work here anymore. Because if she applies now, if she applies this fall, she's not starting law school until next fall. Yeah. So why? They have that's, a year. Yeah, a whole year that you would get of of this person. And I don't, so I just, I don't know. I don't get it. <sighs> that's, maybe, maybe they're grooming them for a, like a five-year track. But no one has... No one's with firms that long these days. Yeah, I like. yeah. I mean, I, 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 what I think is happening is, and I, I mean, we know this to be true, right? Big corporations, or big, big firms, big companies, they make a lot of their money based on the the sweat and toil of young folks, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that they probably try to make you feel as if you know, this is a lifetime career thing, and that you've got to be committed and you've got to be all in and all that. But well, the, one thing is they do make more money as you go along, right? So probably your third year, you're making a lot yeah, of yeah, money yeah. For yeah. as you you're, get better. Yes, you're definitely going to make more money as you go along. But 
the thing that you know this whole loyalty thing of them trying to like get her to commit to work there forever um or at least pretend like she's going to work there forever it's such bullshit especially because they could lay her off tomorrow yeah there's there's rarely any reciprocity there (laughs) no absolutely not yeah absolutely not i mean they might be blowing smoke up your ass and like telling you that there's a place here for you forever and you know that they want you to stay forever and whatever that's that's possibly true but it's also the case that if the economy turned upside down again tomorrow which is certainly possible um they could let you go in a heartbeat and they wouldn't think twice about it and so i just i don't young people you do not owe your employer anything um (laughs) you you are working there for their benefit and your benefit and as long as it's beneficial to both of you then you'll continue this relationship but when it's not beneficial to one of you either you or them you're gonna say goodbye and you really should just say goodbye if it's not a situation that really is working out for everybody yeah so i'm not telling her to quit her job i am telling her that i would quit her job if i were her because this sounds like a miserable place to work wait hold on i felt like you just said two different things well i am not her so i'm not telling her what to do okay yeah but i i would never live in that situation i mean if i thought that there was this sword hanging over my head that if i ever told them the truth about what i'm gonna do you know and she's saying she is convinced like she knows i have i definitely want to go to law school i am planning to apply this fall and now that she has to keep that as a secret from her boss or a secret from her work that to me is bullshit um so I would be kind of more inclined to just let the chips fall where they may and go on in and have a heart-to-heart with your boss. Okay, so one thing here, stepping back, is she wants to know who she should ask for recommendations from, and the schools are going to want academic recommendations anyway, right? So one thing yeah. she could do is try to get some and see how hard that is. And then if she can get two from professors, she she said that there's only one professor that she had uh, more than one class with. I don't think that matters at all. I would think about professors that gave her a very high grade, ideally an A, if she had any A pluses, even better. Yep. That's pretty rare. But if she had an A, reach out to them. uh, Try to maybe, I don't know, where did she go to school? She went to school in the area. Yeah, I'm not going to say it just in case she doesn't, you know, it seems like she's trying to be kind of on the down low about this. So it's a University of California school. I'm not sure if it's far away from where she lives, but um, I would, yes, you can uh, rekindle the flame with these professors. Professors expect that students are going to come back to them and ask them for letters of recommendation. This happens all the time. So I would look at your transcript. I would figure out where you got an A plus or where you got a solid A and you know that you did really good work in the class. I would look for a professor who you genuinely liked. If you can find a professor who you feel like actually changed your life, you know, who someone who really was influential to you, I would, yeah, I would go back and try to rekindle the flame with that professor. So um keep it short just say look i'm going to law school i just wanted to just talk to you maybe go during their office hours so it's not disrupting their schedule at all and keep it short yeah if you can show up at office hours that's awesome but if not a phone call or an email and it's along the lines of hey uh professor jones i'm sure you don't remember me but i definitely remember you i took your class back in the fall of 2011 and i absolutely loved it um, you might remember I wrote my paper about XYZ. I, you know, 
I don't, don't blame you if you don't remember it, but um, you know, because of your class, I'm now contemplating going to law school. I really am going to apply this fall. And here's the magic words. I'm not asking you now, but I'm asking you if in the near future, I can ask you for a letter of recommendation oh, for law yeah, school. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. It's and, so much easier to say yes to something down the road than right now. Right. And and as soon as they say yes, then you say, okay, let's get cracking. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, um, but, but you just, you, 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 you phrase it in a very, now that makes you look very professional, right? It makes you look really organized. It makes you look really professional. You can offer to, um, another thing is like, you know, Hey, maybe I could come and, um, have coffee with you at your office hours or something like that sometime soon. Or maybe we could schedule a 10 minute phone call. We could chat about this or maybe, um, if you're interested, I'd be happy to send you a draft of my personal statement so that you can see where I'm at and what I, you know, what my plans are for law school. Definitely. But they, you know, if you genuinely got an A in this class and if you really enjoyed it and if you kissed their ass a little bit, I'm sure that they're going to be happy to write you a letter of recommendation. And the schools, uh, they don't hard require a an academic letter of recommendation, but you know, nothing profess, uh, nothing impresses academics more than other academics. So uh, I would, she's still relatively young. She's only a few years out of school. So I think going and trying to get at least one of those uh, letters of recommendation would be great. Uh, a TA, by the way, would be perfectly appropriate. There's nothing wrong with a TA recommendation, especially if it's a TA who really knows you. So that's another possible angle of attack. I might try to get one from a professor and one from a TA. That's yeah. an idea. Why not? Or or two professors and one TA who see who comes through and totally. sometimes they share their letter with you. And so if they all shared it with you, uh, that's, I mean, I don't know yeah. your experience, Nathan, but it does seem like a lot of people share their letters these days. And you could pick and choose which one you like better. Yeah, see who responds the most enthusiastically. Um, the other thing to remember is that letters of recommendation really are a necessary condition, not a sufficient condition. So this yep. is not the kind of thing that's going to just get you into law school. It is the kind of thing that's going to keep you out of law school if you do it wrong. And that's why I want to talk about this, her idea of getting letters from family and friends and relatives who attended law schools that she's interested in. What do sure. we think about that? Uh, my gut reaction is no, I think they're going to be sort of meaningless. In fact, I would I would think that they would raise questions as to why aren't you getting letters from people outside your Yeah, family. I'm going to go ahead and say that that's actually one that could instantly get you denied uh, admission because I feel like that is an error in judgment to think that your mom who went to the school that you're interested in can write you a letter of recommendation that means anything. Um, that is, it, it is completely meaningless to the committee. Um, and well, it actually has the exact opposite of the meaning that you want it to have. Um, because yeah, they're going to look at that and they're going to say, uh, you are not a professional person for having your mom write you a letter of recommendation. So strongly, strongly discourage people from having friends and family write letters. Now, friends and family can absolutely go into the back channels. Yes, I was just going to actually talk about that. What about reaching out informally, just saying, especially if they know the dean or know some law professor there, that would that could be informally super, no? 
absolutely. If you have a, fr a close friend or relative who attended UCLA Law and you want to go to UCLA, UCLA Law and this person is now like some big time, um, especially if they're like a donor <laughs> to the school or especially if they have some sort of, um, you know, if they're a prestigious alum of the school. Yep. If you have them make a phone call to the dean and just ask them, you know, it can be kind of in terms of like, Hey, Dean so-and-so, uh, yeah, this is such-and-such such Esquire, and uh, I'm calling on behalf of a family friend about admission to UCLA Law this fall. I'm just wondering if there are any, I don't know, you come up with some questions to ask them or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, do you have any tips for uh, an applicant? And you're having a friend ask this on your behalf. Mm -hmm. That's just a, there's a subtle way there of like, this person is vouching for you and you're kind of drawing attention to your candidacy but that that is not in the letter of recommendation is not the appropriate place to do that. I agree. Um, not, so so let, just to be really clear, the letters of recommendation must be written by someone who was your professor or was your TA or was your boss. And that's really it. And I would say, depending on your situation, favor professors because you are applying to law school. Yeah, especially and especially if you're just very recently out of school. Now, if you've been in the working world for, you know, five years or more, it, you don't have to have, this is coming from Anne Levine now, you do not have to have uh, academic letters of recommendation. And as a matter of fact, if you've been out of school for 10 years, it might not even be appropriate that you include academic letters of recommendation because in 10 years, you know, you're just not even the same person that you were in school 10 years ago. So there you might, it might be you're completely appropriate. You're now on medical marijuana or whatever. <laughs> no, I was, oh, actually I wasn't on medical marijuana when I was in college. <laughs> um, no, that was different days. Um, but you, you, you definitely do, uh, it is appropriate to have professional letters if you've been in the professional working world for 10 years. For for this person, I would say, you know, maybe one of each. Um, and boy, to circle back to this thing with the job, I guess, it, you know, it might not take very long to get a letter from your boss. So maybe get the LSAT out of the way and get your applications almost completed, get all your other letters in the can, get your transcripts submitted to the LSAC, get your list of schools that you're applying to ready to go. And then at the last minute, I mean, I do, th it does sound to me like this could be a powerful letter of recommendation coming from her boss. Yeah. You know, she's been there for a long time. She's got a promotion. She, they like her. I do think that that letter from the boss could be very helpful so maybe you just wait until you're right about to apply and then you go in and just have the heart to heart. My guess is if if the person that she's, she talks about, well, I think my work would write me an excellent letter of recommendation. I, I'm assuming that she has a particular person in mind, someone yeah. up the chain, um, obviously someone who knows her more than someone who knows her less. Yeah. Uh, but if she has someone in mind, especially if they're not too distantly removed from her, and they like her. Yeah. I, I think that this is not going to be the outcome that she's expecting. I think that they might even start right. getting behind her and saying, you know, look, I had this friend who went to law school. You should talk to him um, right. or talk to her. And I mean, my only exception to this would be unless there's like some sort of almost explicitly stated policy, not written down, but maybe people have said this. So if you're going to 
leave in the next year, we're going to fire you immediately. I just, for some reason, I, I wonder how much of this is just imagined. No, no offense, Courtney, but... Yeah, no, I I actually completely agree with that. I have a feeling, it sounds to me, that, that this might be kind of going on in her head um, a little bit. And yeah, it, the other, th I guess maybe I want to make one more point, which is, Ben, you said it needs to be somebody who knows you more rather than someone who knows you less. I think people don't understand that quite fully. Like, if she's thinking about getting a letter from her boss's boss, that might not be appropriate anyway. Yeah. I think that she needs to be getting the letter from the person who really knows her and who is really going to say passionate things about her as an applicant. And specific concrete things that someone exactly. higher up can't say and it just becomes platitudes that are right. pointless. Right, So I, I actually think that, you know, even though your boss's boss has a fancy title, I think that your boss, the one with the less fancy title, but the one who has actually worked shoulder to shoulder with you every day while you've been there, I think that's the appropriate person. And that's also the person who's more likely, you know, you can take that person out for a beer and you can say, you know, hey, Joanne, Hypothetically speaking, if like an employee of the firm was going to apply to law school, they need to get letters a year in advance. And, uh, you know, what, would that be like a terrible thing to ask for? <laughs> I mean, were you doing the like wink, wink with, yeah. you know, your drinking buddy at that point? Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I would I would dig into that a little bit, I guess, and, and try to see if it's possible to get that letter because that, that letter does seem useful. Yeah. Definitely. Again, um, and this applies, by the way, someone who knows you best. That's That makes more sense. So TAs are perfectly fine. and But yeah, you want the TA who like really knew you and who's really going to say passionate things and concrete things about you, um, even if they don't yet have the PhD and professor tag on their resume um, or letterhead or whatever. That's not what's important. What's important is they actually know who you are and they can testify to your promise as a student yep i agree cool wow right. we covered a ton of ground today yeah so that was almost two hours if you endured through that with us thank you we will send you flowers eventually <laughs> i'd love to know what people think actually of the length so if you made it to this far and you want to drop us a line help at thinkinglset.com and let us know what you think about the longer format my guess is that people who made it to the end are going to be happy with the longer format but <laughs> and um... those who didn't will never tell us so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so this is an awesome study that we're doing <laughs> but uh yeah, thanks everybody for listening and um, we, we love your questions. We built this entire episode just off of your questions. So keep them coming and uh, we'll, we've been pretty good so far, huh? About getting right, like we immediately go, we immediately cover the questions on the very next episode. So um, yeah. yeah, send us your, uh, send us your comments, send us your questions and we will get on them. And good luck to Alex. Hopefully... Well, by that time, he's probably by the time he hears this, he'll probably already have taken the test. But oh, Alex in Asia, who's who's taking the weird June twenty eighth test? That's interesting to me. Do you think it's the same test? No, I actually know that it's not. Oh, okay. I don't know why I know that, but I have. Uh, where did I learn that? Basically, I think even the um, the religious ex you know exemption tests are yeah. different because they want. Oh, I know where it came from. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had a big big snowstorm here in D.C. 
and they had to close down test centers and people were rescheduled for a week or sometimes two weeks later. Okay. And they were they got different tests and the explanation I got was as soon as they get it as soon as the test is over, you know, people are talking about it online and they don't want to give them that that edge. So they draw from one of the previous February tests or another test that they haven't disclosed. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because people you know, they can't, they just can't stop people from pirating these tests anyway. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. they've got security at the test centers, but how hard is it for somebody to go in with the secret spy glasses and just photograph every page of the entire test? Sure. Right. Well, just I mean, talking that, about the games too, can give people a leg up, you know, some people oh, have absolutely. pretty good memories of. Yeah. What oh, happened. and if you send in a team, you know, if you send in a team of 40 people, to take the test on the same day and it's like hey your job is to just use the entire three hours to memorize game number one i mean like you know <laughs> people people would be able to do that and i'm sure people are going to those kinds of lengths or they would go to those kinds of lengths if it was possible to to cheat in that way yes if they knew that the test would be administered again within the month yeah yeah so okay so that makes sense so alex is going to be taking a, a different test on june 28th but yeah good luck And good luck to everybody, and uh, definitely send us an email. We love to hear from you. Definitely. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, everybody.